Welcome to the Top Order Podcast and welcome to our feed. We watched some podcasting tips from some of the greats around the world and they said the best thing to do with your podcast is record your intros and outros after you've done your episode so you can tell listeners what's going on. And tonight is no exception. We got a little bit carried away and recorded this episode in two parts. So coming up after the ubiquitous swish, you will have part one of our evolution of T20 cricket where we talk about batting and mystery spin and that's all coming up on this episode of the Top Order Podcast. Stay tuned. Baldy, over to you to open the ceremony of the evolution of T20 world cricket. What's been on your mind as you've planned yet another most excellent run sheet for us this evening? Thanks, boys. Get relaxed and comfy, listeners. Make yourself a warm or cold beverage of your favourite nature and strap yourself in, literatively or figuratively, if you're in a couch or perhaps in the driver's seat of the car on the way to work or on the way home from work as we take a journey, as they say in business parlance, through the evolution of T20 cricket. I want to start with a comment that was made in the planning meeting this week. And Stuart, now that you've had a chance to sleep on it, are you standing by your comment or are you prepared to walk back T20 is the most important format of cricket at the moment. Hold on, we have a planning <laughs> meeting. When was that? Yeah, we, we have it without you. We just we find it goes much better when, when you're not there. <laughs> but look, you, you made that comment, Baldy, around uh, what I said, and, and I 100% I stand by it. I, I mean, yeah, I, I completely agree. It's not, it's not something that brings me pleasure to say. It's not, uh, you know, I think T20, T20 cricket is probably my least favorite out of the you know the three formats in terms of tests and odis and and t20 cricket i know there's a there's a range of other formats uh, around the world but th- those three are the ones we we focus on mainly but i think absolutely think that t20 cricket's the most important cricketing format in the world you know it's that why is that well Stu? i think it's because it's the one that is given the highest priority by the cricket boards if you look at what they're all trying to do around the world a lot of that obviously is driven by money, but it's the vehicle that people see to grow the game internationally with the teams that are, you know, the lower ranked countries around the world. It's the one that they, that all the cricket boards encourage young kids to go and watch by encouraging their, you know, Super Smash or the 100 or the uh, 100's not even a 2020 competition, but the IPL and, and all of these ones, but it's actually also the format that pays a huge chunk of the wages for the majority of the best players around the world. So, you know, no matter what I think or what the rest of us think uh, around this table in terms of what we'd prefer to watch, I think world cricket is driven by T20 cricket. I mean, am I wrong? Well, that's the question that we're going to uncover tonight, really. Is 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 T20 cricket the most important format from a global game perspective. And you can certainly make an argument, particularly from an associate nation point of view, that it definitely is. We're going to go way back to the beginning, though, way back to the beginning of T20 limited overs cricket. And we're going to go back to England. And Binksy, you're going to pick up a bit of a history lesson for those of us who weren't uh, growing up in England in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and being part of that early evolution of T20 cricket in clubland. Yeah, so look, I guess Lippy's definitely going to come in and talk about Cricket Max, I'm sure, um, and claim, of course, that uh, New Zealand invented this particular format. But look, I remember it as being a 120-ball format, which was a constant of UK club cricket for as long as I can remember. used to remember Tuesday and Wednesday nights going to watch my dad play um, essentially the Birmingham 
uh, cricket league equivalent of first grade uh, limited overs competition, which was played on weeknight evenings, normally kicks off at around about half past five in the evening. And it was either 15 eight balls, which I think my rudimentary math tells me adds up to 120, or it was 26 ball overs. And then that sort of transpired into the county level game. So a little bit of a bugbear for me that T20 cricket really from a domestic tournament perspective at a first class level started really in 2003 at county level after the then Benson and Hedges Cup was changed and it was the idea of an English cricket board marketing guy who then went on to Warwickshire who became probably the early pioneers of making a T20 an ideal vehicle for a stag do or a great night out and Just to put some context around this, none of the grounds had floodlights at this stage. So the English cricket grounds were actually installing massive generators on trucks with temporary five or six light towers around the exterior of the ground, quite low floodlights um, because none of the grounds had those permanent floodlights. Overseas players, of course, part of that. I remember seeing Alan Donald steaming in for Warwickshire, who called themselves the Bears at that point. So whilst the Bears were always a logo, they'd never referred to themselves as that. And I think the you know the ECB marketing team actually sort of were a little bit of a precursor um, for that. Um, and look, I'm sure we'll fast forward, but um, you know that was um, still a you know a, a part of the English county game, um, even as uh, you know this year with the T20 Blast, still a very very successful domestic tournament. So yeah. That's the kind of, I guess, the plug for England being the origin of this format. But Lippy, you're going to um, talk to me about um, guys with flags waving, you know, balls into a zone like aircraft into a hangar, um, fourth stumps, no LBWs, and um, you know, you're allowed to make the bales out of cheese or something. In um, New Zealand's answer to that, which was cricket max. Well, well, look, you gave yourself away there by saying 2003 because. Martin Crow invented Cricket Max in 1996 and, and we were playing internationals uh, the following year and you know we, we had domestic competitions uh, long before that. We were playing at uh, Ericsson Stadium, Raj, for, at uh, you know now Mount Smart Stadium, the home of the, the mighty Vodafone Warriors. But look, I could talk about that for, for too long. So look, I mean, Baldy inexplicably excluded Martin Crow from our Hall of Fame and um, you know I try and mention that every single time that we... Uh, have one of those episodes but uh, you know fortunately I do get a chance to talk about a, him now because it's very clear that he was ahead of his time with Cricket Max I know that there's uh, there, there are some sort of jokes people make about Cricket Max in terms of what Binksy said around you know the fact that there was four stumps at the start but to be fair that didn't last very long there was only four stumps I think for the first couple of games maybe maybe just the first sort of exhibition games but there, there were a few wacky rules. The cricket max, or the the max zone, where anyone who's not listening, uh, who, who's sorry, uh, who's listening, who doesn't know about cricket max, if you're not listening, then you you didn't hear that anyway. But look, you could get eights and twelves, and you know if you hit it into the cricket mat into the max zone, it was double. There was uh, the first time they played, there were specialist batsmen and specialist bowlers. But essentially, it was a T20 game, but split over two innings. So you'd have 10 overs for one side, come out, have 10 overs the other side, 10 overs again, 10 overs again. You could lose all 10 wickets. So, you know, you would have games where it's like 120 for 10 uh, plays, you know, blah, 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 the the same kind of way through. I did think it was interesting that 
I went back and had a look through the uh, the scorecards for some of those games, and and they're very similar to to what we get now. You know, you you'd think that back in the day maybe they didn't have the the skill set that batters have these days of all the three sixty areas and stuff. But I mean, Raj, do you do you remember cricket, Max, or is that before your time? I do remember a little bit of it actually. Um, I don't know why, but I have a very uh, vivid memory of uh, Franklin Rose and the West Indians coming in and playing the uh, Max Blacks. So I don't know why that is, but I actually, I actually really liked that four over uh, four innings format. I think that that's something that could could actually uh, evolve even further into this iteration of of twenty twenty cricket that we have. Can you think of the? Uh, the permutations and the and the tactics around having uh, Jasper Bumrah bowling four overs in the last in the last innings or bowling them up front. There's heaps of permutations there and tactics. I think it's quite cool. For any for anyone who hasn't uh, who who wants to get a bit of a taste of cricket, Max, there is some fantastic uh, YouTube footage of Max. You should uh, yeah type in cricket, Max. There's some some brilliant stuff. And I I saw uh, you know looking through my deep dive. I saw some uh, Max Black squad names, and uh, honestly, that just brought back some some real Shell Cup nostalgia for any uh, New Zealand listeners there. Names like Phil Chandler, Mark Douglas, Carl Bulfin, Robert Kennedy uh, might bring back some, some memories for, for some of you, but <laughs> some of you might be thinking, who are these people? But yeah, just there's some, some real memories in, in those games. And not to be outdone, of course, Australia, as they always do, stealing the concept from the New Zealanders and created the Super 8s tournament, which was both a domestic tournament played sometimes on even AstroTurf artificial pitches in Australia as well. Uh, but it was eight-a-side cricket, 14 overs. Every player must bowl at least one over. So it was a bit like the old social Monday night tournament. Everyone must bowl. Uh, last man stands, of course, as well, uh, that ended up in a tournament that was played in Kuala Lumpur, an international tournament that was played there, I think at least once in 1998, might have been a couple of times as well. But moving along, as we move from the genesis of T20 cricket, as Adam points out, in 2003 in England with the advent of the England and Wales T20 Blast, as it's now called, and also the CSA T20 Challenge in South Africa, we had our first international T20 in 2005, and it was Australia and New Zealand taking each other on in the inaugural T20 at Eden Park. And to set the scene, we take T20 very, very serious now. It's a billion-dollar business, as we've seen in the expansion of the IPL. But we didn't really take T20 all that seriously in its inaugural international event. Raj, you have some memories of that first T20 international. What do you kind of recall about that first match, Australia versus New Zealand at Eden Park? Well, yeah, I think um, we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit later in terms of how New Zealand and Australia actually took it a little bit a little bit of they took the game as a bit of a joke. I think um, they, when I say joke, it was it was lighthearted, it was jovial, it was festival cricket. Uh, you had the teams in their you know eighties uniforms, uh, and uh, you even had Glenn McGrath bowling an underarm in the second innings. But one thing that really stood out for me in that game, and I remember watching it at the time, and I, I think it's still applicable today, is that innings that Ricky Ponting played, that ninety eight not out he scored was an incredible innings, uh, incredible batsmanship, uh, where he played cricket shots. He didn't, at the end, he opened his hip a little bit, but throughout his innings, uh, he played cricket shots, he stayed in line, and he put the ball uh, into the short boundaries and, and played Eden Park uh, as best, as good as anybody has played it from what I've seen. Um, and I, that had me thinking, actually, a little bit about how 
2020 batting has evolved over the years. So I just want to go on a little tangent with that, uh, if you guys will indulge me. Uh, and I've kind of broken it down into three areas. So I think 360 degree batting ability is really important these days. So when I was growing up, I remember getting coaching and I was told that in order to succeed, you need to really play three shots really, really well. And one of those was a defensive shot. So as soon as the 2020 cricket came along and uh, it started to evolve, I think that went out the window and we really had that 360 degree batting ability. I mean, you had the dill scoop. Uh, does anyone have any memories of McCullum uh, scooping Sean Tate uh, at Jade Stadium? Anybody like to indulge on that? Yeah, I think that was one of my earliest memories of T20 cricket for, because from a pace bowling perspective, every team wanted to have that out-and-out out fast bowler. Of course, Sean Tate couldn't play test cricket because he couldn't, he couldn't bowl 12, 15 overs in a day. He could only bowl six or eight overs before he broke down because of you know elbow injuries, backs, etc. But he could bowl four overs. So Australia, all of a sudden, at the advent of T20 international cricket, had this gun-fast bowler that could bowl 158, 160, and we thought that this was going to be a tremendous, tremendous kind of advantage, this out-and-out out pace. But, of course, Brendan McCullum decided he'd get down on one knee and just ramp the guy over the, over the sight screen for six. And all of a sudden, we're like, oh, hang on. Raw pace isn't, isn't necessarily an advantage. It's, it's, it's inherently slappable. And, and it's not quite the advantage we thought it is. But that's ebbed and flowed over the, over the evolution of T20 cricket as well, the advantage of genuine express pace, and we see it now, Boomerah, Mark Wood, etc. But let's go back to that batting, Raj, and that, um, that wonderful memory of, of McCullum, among others, ramping um, Sean Tate over the sight screen. Yeah, sticks out. And, and you've got the switch hit as well that Glenn Maxwell and KP played really well. But I guess what that led to was that there was no room for passengers. I know originally when we had um, when we had 2020 cricket on the mind, we were like, people can retire from international cricket and they can go and play tournaments all around the world. But, but that changed very quickly when you couldn't carry passengers in the field because there was nowhere you could hide them. It was a 360-degree game. And that, that to me leads to the next point here, which is around premeditation, particularly with data-driven decisions. So as we, as we, I'm just jumping a little bit forward here, uh, please excuse me for that, but when we go to those franchise tournaments and things like that, we're seeing matchups being put, we're seeing bowlers coming on to, to bowl to specific batsmen, all driven by data. We're making sure that we are uh, facing the least amount of dot balls in an innings to make sure that we're winning it. Uh, and and I've, that's some, somewhere it's really sort of changed, which leads then to the third part of this around tactics. So as a batsman, you had that first six overs where you want to go out there, you don't want to lose more than two wickets, you want to score 50 runs and X number of percentage you win games doing that. Uh, you've got roles as well when you talk about closers who are someone back then, uh, when we first started, was the Lou Vincent mould or the Brendan McCullum mould coming in at the end, someone really quick between the wickets who, who was running for that last 10 overs in a one-day game. That changed very quickly to someone who could hit a massive, massive bomb out of the ground. Um, and then you, you have the dashes at the beginning of the innings as well. Now you have anchors. It's all evolved a lot from from that first game where it was basically Australia's test lineup. Yeah, so sorry, Baldy, I indulged a little bit there with the batting. I'll hand it back over to you. Well, we're going to indulge our spin resident here at the moment because I'm having a look through the scorecard of that Australia-New Zealand first T20 international and not a single spin bowler amongst them unless you encounter, uh, unless you count, sorry, the right arm slow of Andrew Simons. I can't see any spin bowling options here for New Zealand in that lineup either. 
the evolution of spin bowling in T20 cricket didn't start out very auspiciously at all, Stu. Oh, it's it's funny when you think about it, isn't it? Because when you when you think about what spin bowling, all, all the chat around that time was, this is going to be the death of spin bowling. Like everyone's just going to go out there, slog spinners, and they're going to get absolutely pumped in this format where they can't be attacking because they there's no sort of risks, and they're just people are just going to put them out of the attack. But you look at the ICC T20 rankings now, eight out of the top ten bowlers are spinners. They're including the top six, I think. We've got Hasaranga, Shamsi, Adil Rashid, Rashid Khan, Mujib, Adam Zampa. Like, <laughs> spinners are dominating T20 cricket. If you don't have a spinner, uh, you know, a real quality spinner in T20 cricket, you've really got no chance. And without diving too deeply into the, into the wrist spin side of things, at the beginning of T20 cricket internationally, we thought it was going to be the death of wrist spin as well because it was going to be that get the ball on the fall or rock back and smash it. Wrist spinners aren't going to be able to cope in, in T20 cricket. There was a thought that maybe someone like Murali might be able to still have that kind of um, that, that big turning off break with the Dusra and be able to be effective. But if you have a look at the evolution of wrist spin in T20 cricket, there has never been more wrist spinners in international cricket than there is now. I mean, you only have to look at England have got Adil Rashid. Australia have got Adam Zampa. Um, New Zealand have got Ish Sodi. Afghanistan have got Rashid. Um, Pakistan have got Shadab Khan. India have got Rahul Chahar playing in the World Cup. Every side has a wrist spinner, at least one wrist spinner. But none of them are playing test cricket. And we'll get to that as we go through um, tonight's podcast. So from a little bit of inauspicious beginnings, really, that international T- T20 cricket, where it was a little bit of hit and giggle, funny hairstyles. I think there were a couple of fake mullets in there and, and headbands as well. There was a real statement game, though. Things changed a little bit in 2005, even before IPL. And Adam, you wanted to touch on a statement game for England prior to a big, big series against Australia. Yeah, well, Baldy, any opportunity to talk about the 2005 Ashes, you, you know that about me. Um, having been friends for for many years now. But that's my first recollection of it. I remember watching it in a pub in Hammersmith in West London uh, with some mates. And um, ultimately, England did set a statement in that game, scoring 179 in their first innings, KP, man of the match. Um, Garant Jones going to the top of the batting order in that game as well. And then they blitzed Australia, bowled them out for 79. And look, I'm not saying that that was when T20 became serious internationally. But I think what it did was it showed that it wasn't a joke. It showed in Raj's um, words that momentum could be gained from the type of performance that you could put in in that type of game, lifting a big international summer, which obviously led uh, to England going on and winning the Ashes for the first time in in a long, long time. But I think the biggest change for me in that now is that that was really as a as an appetizer, and and I think where we're leading with this is that T Twenty is no longer the appetizer. It it's in its own right now a format uh, that demands attention. And as a purist, I I kind of feel really torn saying that, but I think that that is just I guess a, an imperative now of the game that it, it you know it is the economic engine to a large extent. To pick up on your spin piece, um, just, you know, my very, very quick two cents on that. I think that's really come about because of the value of the wicket in the middle overs, right? If you're not taking wickets not in the power plays, then you kind of almost play yourself out of the game. And teams now need either that 
um, genuine spin option, whether it's risk spin or mystery spin or extreme pace in those middle overs um, to make sure that you're taking a couple of wickets. Otherwise, the 360 nature of the batsmen that are going to come in is going to mean that six overs uh, for 60 in the power play. And then, you know, the last six or seven overs where you can really launch is going to put you a score somewhere in that 180 to 200 region unless you've got that, that spin option to take wickets in the middle. You're absolutely right about that, and and I, the only point that I'll really make before we move on to to kind of the the leagues that emerged after that well uh, those initial uh, international games is that the there's really two distinct types of spinners now that we see in T Twenty cricket. You get the and and they're almost uh, become quite typecast. You either get your leg spinner or your mystery spinner. Uh, who is, as you said, Binksy, your kind of attacking weapon, uh, or you get your, it seems like they're all left armers, uh, you know, Mitch Santner, Imad Wazim, um, even Mark Watt um, from, from Scotland, who's been really excellent. I, yeah, I think he might, uh, you know, get a few phone calls after this T20 World Cup, but they're your sort of holding bowlers uh, that really try and, Get get you through quickly four overs for twenty four maybe in a game, and then your leg spinners or your mystery spinners are the ones who try and pick up those wickets. So yeah, it's been a, a real uh, evolution of te- of spin bowling, I guess, uh, in in T Twenty cricket. And just before we move on, we can throw Akil Hussain in there from the West Indies. I thought he was excellent the other night against Australia. He bowled almost an in swinger. That, that sort of swung with the hand, almost sort of Darren Stevens-style pace. And I, I want to come back on to pace of bowling as we get through the evolution of T20 cricket. But you're right, let's move on from the first internationals in 2005, not being paid much attention in terms of a seriousness nature. But the New Zealand Super Smash, the Australian Big Bash, and also the, the, the precursor to the PSL, the Pakistan National T20 Cup, all started around that 2005 era. And then you've got the West Indies starting the Stanford T20 tournament in in 2006. And I think for me, this is almost the genesis of big money T20 cricket. I mean, Alan Sanford, uh, for all his flaws, did kind of instigate that big money. I think it was it was it England against the West Indies. Adam p- potentially the, the kind of instigator there to recompense maybe the England players. I can't really remember how it started, but the England players for not getting to play in a big tournament. Can you fill us in there? Yeah, so look, for those of you who are interested in this, go and listen to um, Sports Strangest Crimes. It's a BBC podcast which goes into the unravelling of Alan Stanford's business empire and the links that that had to cricket. I think the title of the podcast is The Man Who Tried to Buy Cricket. But yeah, in short, what happened was England weren't going to allow their players to go off to the IPL. So um, if you're cynical, you would say that the Stanford superstars... Um, And that's who they were billed. They weren't a West Indies team. They were a private team of West Indies cricketers, but they didn't line up in the maroon of the West Indies, but played against England for 20 million US dollars at a game in Antigua, which um, if you go and look at the history of the the Stanford superstars had had a six-week camp to prepare for the game um, and blitzed England on the field. But yeah, you're dead right. That was really where that kind of money... 
um, came into it. Famously, he landed a helicopter with a box of cash said to be $20 million. Um, in reality, it looked like it might have been a few $20, uh, $20 notes on the outside of, of some blank paper as he landed on the nursery <laughs> ground because, um, as anyone knows, um, Alan Sanford then uncovered as having a, a Ponzi scheme in the billions of dollars, um, which lost a lot of people their, you know, their hard-earned savings. But absolutely, I think that was the genesis for probably the success of the West Indian T20 team um, th- th- You know, that's um, uh, reached, I guess, its... Um, uh, end of its road with with Chris Gale and DJ Bravo um, bowing out of international cricket relatively recently, we think. But yeah, absolutely, that was really the formation of that being a really big money component of the game, I think, before uh, the IPL. And that wasn't the only Rebel Cricket League that was formed around that time either. Of course, the Indian Cricket League, the ICL, was another Rebel Cricket League that was formed just, I think, either prior to or around about the same time as the IPL, and of course that had its own controversy. The BBC, uh, the BCCI responded and created the IPL, which is now pretty much the premier franchise cricket tournament throughout the world. Stuart, you wanted to come in on the formation of the ICL there? Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, because I mean it, it was actually quite a big deal uh, when that happened in terms of New Zealand cricket because we had uh, quite a few guys, I guess, coming to that level of uh, it's not quite the end of their careers, but New Zealand cricketers didn't make a lot of money at that time. So the opportunity to go to, you know, this newly formed tournament, which was the ICL, and actually make a bit of cash at the end of your career, it was very appealing. You know, we had we had Shane Bond, who, um, you know, talked about us when we first chatted to him. He talked about going to that. There was Chris Harris, Chris Cairns, Andre Adams. I remember him telling us that story about how the lights went out as he was about to face Tino Best. Uh, when he was uh, over in the ICL, but it was very much a tournament where I, I know that some of those guys never got the money that they were promised. It was, you know, it was not sanctioned by the boards. There was a lot of conversations around, you know, will the players who've signed there be able to play international cricket? And you know, Bondi had to stand down for for a certain, or for well, not stand down. He was, you know, unable to play for New Zealand for a certain amount of time. But I think what that did is. The fact that people were so interested in that, you touched on it just there, it it created the IPL because everyone went, look, there's going to be, if, if we don't do something that's sanctioned by these boards, we don't provide this opportunity for players to make big money from a format that clearly does have a TV audience, then everyone's going to go and, you know, try and create these and we have to provide an opportunity for players to make that money and not be lost to the international Mm. game. Yeah, almost 30 years to the year since the advent of World Series cricket that did very much similar things for players being paid in that era, triggered a whole bunch of innovation in that time, helmets and lights and coloured clothing and what have you. This also unlocked that next generation of, of an increase in player value around 2007, 2008. And of course, we start to get into that area where we had the first World Cup as well, the first T20 World Cup in South Africa in 2007, India defeating Pakistan in a highly charged final in South Africa. And then we sort of started to see 2008 through 2010, an era of new leagues. So the the Indian Premier League kicked off and we could probably do 20 or 30 minutes just on the... Indian Premier League itself but but let's not gloss over that let's move forward continue to move forward we've got World Cups in 2007 2009 2010 2012 
2014-2016. So that eight-year period, lots and lots of international World Cup cricket, lots and lots of franchise cricket going on. We had the birth of the West Indies T20 League, the CPL in 2010. The Bangladesh Premier League kicked off in 2012. So we moved through that era, that first five years of professional franchise cricket, and we get a saturation of, of T20s, and we get a lot, a lot of T20s. And just following on from that, looking at the World Cup specifically, Raj, you had some thoughts around that World Cup and the results not necessarily being representative of the best teams in those eras, do you think? Well, I guess there's a couple of ways to look at it. I'm probably going to look at it that, that it was the best best representation of those of those teams and what it did was there was a lot of learnings to be had. These teams had only been playing each other in bilateral series uh, up until this point. Here they were able to get onto a world stage in the same conditions and sort out the, uh, the, the, the top teams from those also ran. So this is where we st- start to see that stark divide between those groups of nations. So... Uh, with the first few, those subcontinental teams really started to take over those first few World Cups. There was the um, the investment in that, that format as a sport. We've talked about the IPL as well, which started just after the first World Cup. But you saw India and Pakistan put that emphasis on the short term, uh, shortest form of the game, sorry. And, um, and they won the first two iterations. And then we had the likes of the West Indies and England, or England and the West Indies respectively, who uh, were early adopters. Uh, Binksy's talked to us about how they've played tournaments. The Stanford uh, 2020 tournament was also there. This is where they also caught up, I feel, and it wasn't long before they won the third and fourth World Cups, respectively. But as those were happening, I think looking at a team like Sri Lanka, they were. this is where they started to emerge as a bit of a powerhouse, and I think they actually, which we'll talk about in a little bit, they set the tone for what actually is the balance that we see today uh, in, a, in, a, in a 2020 lineup. So... Apart from the extreme talent they had and guys like Sangakara and, and Jay Wardner especially, the overall balance of their side was made up with all-rounders who could bowl spin. And Stu's mentioned that a few times how important spin bowling is in the 2020, and we'll come back to that in a second. Well, actually, I would like to dive into that at this point because we're now into the sort of 2010 to 2014 era. We started with pace heavy, you know, seven batters plus four pace bowlers at the start of that T20 tournament. I mean, the only guy that I could see bowling any spin in those first two or three T20 internationals were Michael Clark and Andrew Simon. So very much part-timers. But now this is starting to change. The evolution of T20 is starting to involve more and more spinners. And it's no surprise that the early adopters there were all of the subcontinent nations where spin bowling kind of comes naturally in terms of conditions and the way that those spin bowlers are brought up. So what was the change? Was it spin bowling all round us, Raj, that started to become more prevalent? So I think it's balance. Balance is that key. Things happen so quickly in 2020 cricket. Uh, we couldn't just we couldn't just put the best lineups out there and hope they would win, which is what teams like New Zealand, Australia, South Africa did. Uh, in in that first iteration of the World Cup, when Australia actually lost to uh, Zimbabwe, I don't know if you remember. I'll read you out the the lineup for the Australian team. It was Gilchrist, Hayden, Ponting, Simons, Hussey, Hodge. Haddon at number seven, 
and then you had your bowlers Brett Lee, Johnson, Bracken, and Stuart Clark. So I don't know what the team looked like. Oh, I, 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 I'm hazarding a guess that the Test team looked very similar to that uh, at that time for the Australian team. So they were just putting their best players out there. That's completely changed in, in how um, we make up our squads these days. We put the best balance out there to give us options and matchups, and that's what Sri Lanka did really well. And it shows that they have performed well at this World Cup that's going on at the moment. But they've also been in three World Cup finals out of the out of the six that have been played. Uh, they are actually a powerhouse of that short short form cricket. And Stuart wouldn't be a discussion on spin without bringing it over to you. In terms of that that balance of spin bowling, when did we really start to see that emerge in your eyes from a spin point of view? Well, I think you asked me to think about spin, uh, framing this discussion in terms of how it's changed the skill level or, or whether there's been any changes there. And I, I think the first point that I want to make, because I think, uh, you know, let's contrast this to, to test cricket. I, I gave you that stat before about how eight of the top 10 spinners or on in the or 10 bowlers on the T20 rankings are spinners. There's only one out of the top 10 uh, who is a spinner in test cricket, and it's Ravi Ashwin. And you have to go to number 20 to, to get to the next spinner, which is, it's actually quite remarkable. Um, that spinner is Nathan Lyon, who, you know, only really plays test cricket at the, the top level. But I, I sort of feel like you go an era backwards and we were, sp- I mean, maybe we were just spoiled with test spinners because we had Murley, we had Warren, there was Swan, Harbajan, Vittori. There was, there was you know, even but just before that, you had Kumble. Every, you know, every single side had a really, really good spinner in their test lineup. And they all had stacks of wickets. They were all very, very important parts of their bowling lineup. You don't see that in test cricket now. You see in many parts of the world, test cricket is act, or spinners are actually marginalised. In, and it's not just, you know, it's, it's sort of always been a thing here in New Zealand, but it's becoming like that in a lot of other parts of the world now. And, you know, we're really only seeing spin dominate in, in the, the subcontinent. And perhaps, uh, you know, that may, you know, it's, I don't actually think it's a, a skill level thing. I actually think that the T20 cricket has brought, uh, a massive, massive rise in skill for for spinners. It's just that spinners have been able to see that if I want to make a huge amount of money in cricket, if I want to uh, get to the IPL, which, I mean, you know, for us, I guess, as viewers, maybe we don't care about the IPL as much as we do as for test cricket, but for many players around the world, that's got to be your number one draw card that you're trying to get to the IPL because... That's where you can you can make life changing money. I mean, some of the guys we've talked to um, already have been. It's been around. You know, I had this auction, and then my life changed. We we you know we even think about Kyle Jamieson. So, you know, I, yeah, I I should I probably don't want to talk too long. I, I do have some more thoughts. Certainly, uh, one person that I want to kind of discuss in a little bit more detail around spin. But does anyone have any other comments on that? I just wanted to round off the the final World Cup uh, World Cup 2020, which was in 2016, won by the West Indies. All you need to know about that 
uh, World Cup is to watch the press conference of the final with Marlon Samuels after the game, sitting there with his legs up on the table, pads still on, and absolutely letting loose at the um, the, the, the naysayers uh, and the, the people who are uh, cha- uh, yappy out on the field. Uh, ben Stokes didn't get missed, and Shane Warne really didn't get missed. Uh, as well so that, that's something you really have to look out look at but what it also tells us he talks about the passion that the Caribbean has for cricket 2020 cricket in particular and how much trust that 2016 team had in each other so it's a great watch and um, there's, a, there's a reason why we like watching the West Indies play cricket well thanks for listening to this the first half of our episode the T20 cricketing evolution as we said at the top of the show this is split into two parts so you'll see the second part coming up in your feed very very shortly but for now it's good night and god bless from us all here at the top of the podcast <laughs>